Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of All About the Green, IIF's new podcast series that puts a spotlight on key topics and leading experts in the world of sustainable finance. With us today, we're delighted to have Gordon Bennett, who's a Managing Director of Utility Markets at the Intercontinental Exchange, better known as ICE. Welcome, Gordon. It's great to, great to see you. Thanks, Sonia. Great to be here. When you think about the world of climate finance and ESG markets, this whole space is evolving so rapidly. You know, tell us a little bit about your journey. What's been your experience with these markets? I feel like I, I need to start that answer with once upon a time, because it's a bit of a, a story I need to tell. And it's maybe two stories between sort of energy and, and finance. And if I start with energy, I think my, my genesis of my love for energy is probably because my father was in the Merchant Navy. He worked for Exxon. He was a chief engineer on, on oil tankers. And I remember reading all the, the Exxon magazines that used to come through the front door. And uh, that's probably what led me to, you know, having a real sort of interest in energy and probably played a, a big part in me choosing chemistry at university. So that was my energy genesis. And then when I left university, I, I moved into finance uh, training as a, as a chartered accountant latterly uh, Arthur Anderson in the Energy Infrastructure and Utilities Group. So that was when we first started to see energy and finance uh, sort of marry together. And I've effectively had a 25-year career in energy and finance. But funnily enough, I, I think I've only really started to appreciate energy and finance over the course of the last five years when you know, we're starting to think about energy transition and, and sustainable finance. And you know, I, I read a book a few years ago, uh, Vaclav Smil, uh, Energy and Civilization uh, History. And the opening line is, energy is the only universal currency. One of its many forms must be transformed to get anything done. So that, that's, that's pretty, pretty powerful. Energy is important uh, to the functioning of our, of our everyday life. Clearly, that has a nexus to climate because out of the 50 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions, about 75% of those are, are energy related. And then from a, a, a sort of a finance and sustainable finance perspective, I only really started to get into appreciating the purpose of financial markets when I was trying to answer the question, what sustainable finance is? Uh, and I, I was setting up the Sustainable Finance Working Group at ICE with, with my colleague, Anthony Belcher, who I think you, you know through the, the, the task force. And I was struggling to answer the question, what is finance? Um, and, and so I needed to answer that first before getting into what is sustainable finance. I landed on the purpose of financial markets is to allocate capital and to manage risk. And valuation is at the core of it. And going back to my accountancy roots, there's a fair value hierarchy and quoted markets are sitting at the, the top of the fair value hierarchy. They're complemented by level level two and level three, and and ICE is this sort of one big valuation engine with a with a sort of the combination of our quoted markets and our and our data services and the importance of quoted markets and why they sit at the top of the fair value hierarchy really comes down to it's the most precise measure of value because you can trade these markets they're executable. And then how does that roll into the sort of the real economy? Well, it allows participants to manage risk. It, it allows them to smooth their earnings. Why is that important? Well, people attribute higher valuations to companies that have smoother earnings, uh, but also you get access to cheaper forms of capital. 
and more forms of capital if you can smooth your earnings. So you basically allow the economy to grow. And I never thought about finance like that at all until I started thinking about sustainable finance. But let me ask you, you know, you mentioned the energy finance where you started out and, and now we've kind of shifted a bit the conversation to, to climate and sustainable finance. Is it so very different in the process of valuation? You know, you mentioned the markets being a giant valuation engine. It's a great question. And the way I think about sustainable finance and, and sustainable markets is, is, is basically using new tools to come to evaluation. And, and so under traditionally, traditionally economic models, you're, you're not valuing externalities and really sustainable markets and sustainable finance to me is about trying to put a value to externalities and having sort of built a career in, in energy markets and touched the, the European energy trading scheme 15 years ago, that's almost the, the birth of what I call carbonomics, which is really about putting a value on an externality. It, in this instance, a negative externality is pollution. And, and, and that, is, that has changed the, the merit order. It's changed how, how we allocate capital. It's, it's changed how, uh, what forms of energy we use in electricity generation. Again, I didn't know this at the time when I was it, it, there in the beginning, but I've only started to really appreciate the purpose of environmental markets is to value externalities. And so in the case of, you know, climate finance and sustainable finance, you're also valuing positive externalities, right? I mean, you mentioned the negative side, pollution. Yeah, absolutely. We need to we need to value both. Uh, the best example, certainly in, in the portfolio that I am the steward of the environmental markets is renewable energy. And, and so you value the positive externality of effectively not polluting uh, green electricity through a renewable energy certificate. And, and that has a value to it. And, and that effectively allows electricity generators from green sources to get more than just the price of the commodity. So whatever electricity is the price of electricity, it, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It's basically priced on the marginal megawatt hours. So what it, whatever the marginal fuel is will set the price of electricity. But if you're a green producer, you also get this additional attribute, a renewable energy certificate. So you're generating more revenue, more margin. It sounds complex, and I think we'll come back to that in a bit when we talk about the uh, voluntary carbon markets. But before we get to that, I wanted to, to talk about ICE specifically, right? And a lot of people think, okay, everybody is getting into sustainability, but what does it mean in the context of an exchange in the, in the ICE context specifically, and how does it affect your, your own work? ICE as an organization clearly has its own sustainability goals and we've we've been reporting on uh, for, for over six years now in terms of what we are doing in sustainable finance. Uh, I'll give a I'll give a few highlights um, across the ESG, but we're in diversity. We're 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 very strong in diversity the, at a board level. Uh, we've got a very diverse board and we also show uh, strong leadership in diversity through the New York Stock Exchange Board Advisory Council. And that's really about building on a network of, of around 20 uh, execs and, and, and leveraging off of their network to identify uh, candidates for, for boards to make those boards more diverse. On the governance side, because we're, we're very highly regulated, whether it's CFTC, SEC, Bank of England, FCA, and a, a whole host of other regulators, and because we're a tech business, we've got to be really 
really strong on things like cyber security so we're, we're strong in cyber and we're strong on the on the governance side we're strong on the business continuity and the disaster recovery because our, our systems have to be available for for people to, to to manage risk and allocate capital so um those are some of the things in the in the sort of the s and g categories but you know my my experience is very much focused on on the e as an organization we're disclosing our scope ones twos and threes uh, and we're, we're we're setting our reduction targets, and we're using we're using these uh, these positive externalities like RECs in particular to reduce our our carbon footprint. But also we're we're using carbon credits to 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 compensate for our scope ones and our our, our scope threes. And in terms of sort of managing the the, the risk of climate, we're 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 utilizing the the, T, the TCFD framework. But finally, you know, the, one of the biggest things that ICE can offer in, in, in sustainability is its products and services. And I'm, I'm sure we'll go into those in a bit more detail. We will indeed. And it, it, it sounds like, um, like so many of us, really, your, your own job has been, been changing quite a bit to, in, in recent years with this much greater policy and regulatory agenda on, on sustainability. So it sounds like it's affecting many parts of your, of your work. Yeah, I think that the other important thing to note on on sustainability is it, it's still relatively new. Sustainable finance is, is is new and it's evolving. So everyone's got things to learn. So you know, I think ultimately you you got to have the approach that that you got to continually improve in this space. And we're definitely finding that there's things to learn, and it'll take time to 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 make it as sort of as precise as as possible but i don't think that puts us any different than than other corporates out there we're all trying to figure out the challenge of sustainability bit of moving target isn't it with the changing in policy but also the changing science the environment yeah absolutely we're running to keep up <laughs> but i wanted to come back to to something you'd mentioned earlier about the pricing of, of externalities climate and environmental externalities you know and as you say we need markets to do this kind of pricing to help us move toward a sustainable future and of course we need good policies you know we need some sense of carbon pricing and how governments are responding to the the climate threat but one element here is really interesting there's quite a common perception that new green technologies are, are just simply more expensive or in some cases prohibitively expensive you have kind of a green premium on them so can markets help bring down this this green premium on these technologies we so urgently need you're right in that it needs good policy and markets will will play a role it's not all about markets um i think it's important that markets and policy are aligned and that's sometimes sometimes challenging but in terms of the green premium yeah so you know newer technologies greener technologies do tend to be more expensive uh, than than their sort of hydrocarbon equivalent and therefore there is a green premium and in order to incentivize the allocation of capital to these newer technologies you need to erode it and again that's the role of it pricing externalities is it's through pricing externalities that we get to uh, erode the green premium i think the best example of this in practice is in the uk electricity generation sector where we're largely removed coal from the merit order of electricity generation and that's been done through good policy and market-based approach to pricing the negative externality of, of pollution doesn't that kind of get to um 
a regional approach. Like if, if one jurisdiction like the UK has removed coal, as you say, from the, from the merit order and others don't, then how do we get to a kind of a global pricing? Being regional, I don't think it is necessarily a problem because actually if you think about the way that people consume energy is, is largely down to regional nuances. You know, what types of energy do you have close at hand? Because effectively it's about the, the science and the economics of, of transforming and transporting energy. So if you're in Scandinavia and you've got lots of hydro, then you're, you're, you're further down the route in terms of being... Uh, net zero or zero electricity because you can use hydro to it's clean and it also manages intermittency so i think local approaches are 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 very worthwhile and um and are needed but not everyone believes in market-based mechanisms so getting to like a global uh, carbon price has its challenges in an ideal world i would love it if we had a global cap and trade because what a cap and trade does is it gives you a price, but it, it's sometimes lost. But what it gives you is it, it controls the quantity of emissions. So if, if, if you want to control the quantity of emissions, a carbon cap and trade is by far the most effective way of doing it. And you get a price out of it. But as I said, not everyone's advocates of, of market-based mechanisms. So, you know, voluntary carbon market, this, this may be where a voluntary carbon market comes into play, where we can link uh, you know, compliance cap and trades to to voluntary markets and, and and effectively create an international price of carbon, like we did have under phase three of the the the, the European emissions trading scheme. You know, there was something called the certified emission reduction. It was a project based credit, as these voluntary carbon markets are, and the Commission allowed you to use these uh, credits as part of your compliance obligation. So it. It linked it to a compliance ton. It treated as a spread, and it was a CER was effectively an international price of of carbon. Well, let's come back to that because that's a, a really good point, right? When you think about the original task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets, though initiated by by Mark Carney and, and taken forward by a whole host of really talented people across the value chain of of carbon markets, we now have a new Integrity Council for for voluntary carbon markets. And the whole idea is to scale these up so that they can be an effective high integrity counterpart in terms of helping set a, a price for carbon and making this all tradable toward the goal of reducing emissions and meeting net zero goals. And, you know, ICE, as you say, has been involved. You've been part of the task force um, and you've just launched a, a global carbon futures contract. So maybe, you know, tell us a bit more about how carbon markets and what we call nature-based solutions can support this net zero transition. When we think about net zero, we, we think about two pathways. One is energy transition and, and one is creating a, an asset class for nature. Maybe if we focus in on, on that first, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to get to net zero if we don't start valuing the positive externality of 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 nature and nature does many things but if we get if again if we focus in on the carbon element of it we're trying to value the positive externality of capturing and storing co2 it's the other part of the the, the carbon cycle it's co2 in by pollution and co2 out by capture and and storage and it's i think it's integral that we we value that so that we can preserve nature what's really interesting about nature-based solutions at ice in particular is that we are going to launch a nature-based uh, carbon credit 
which is really using more of a commodity-like instrument uh, to, to measure that positive externality. But we also announced last September, September 2021, that we were, we were looking at introducing a, a what's called a, a NAC, a, a natural asset company. So that's using a security and equity to, to value the positive externality of nature. And in the beginning of, the, of our session, we, I was talking about how I didn't really get the purpose of financial markets until thinking about sustainable finance. I didn't really truly appreciate the power of an equity until thinking about natural asset companies, because again, where I landed on was that this equity is this amazing instrument that allows you to value a, a heterogeneous asset class. You know, every company's every company's different. And and so when you look at the project based credit market, all projects are are different. So an equity type instrument might be a really cool solution for nature. As opposed to a more standardized debt instrument, which has got to be really tricky, right? With natural capital, how do you get all the definitions in place and what's worth what? Rainforest in Brazil as opposed to rainforest in Indonesia, you know? Yeah, I think it's tricky. And I think it's tricky to measure the challenge that the, the nature-based solutions have is sort of measuring the the CO2 capture and storage. Is it precise enough to really get all of this capital that seems to be waiting at the sidelines to flow? Uh, I, th- I think there's lots of initiatives to sort of make that more precise to, to help the, the flow. But yeah, that commodity type instrument may be fits better with a homogenous asset class, but we'll, we'll see, um, it, it, you know, one or both, uh, may be successful in, in terms of the equity type instrument. One of the main revenue flows for these natural asset companies will be carbon credits. So the carbon credit is still an important valuation tool. The second component is energy transition, which is sort of, we're changing the merit order of, of how we use energy and. The global carbon index future sort of fits in that negative externality box. So what it is, it's a, a basket of our four carbon allowance futures contracts. So the EUA, the UKA, the CCA, which is the California allowance, and then REGI, which is a cooperative of states in the Northeast seaboard. And it effectively allows you to allocate capital to participate in the cost of pollution in, in one instrument. It's a really great example of the the breadth of the ICE offering because it sort of started with our carbon allowance futures. Then we created an index off the back of our allowance futures. And now we're creating a carbon index future. There's multiple use cases for it. It's effectively pricing the negative externality of pollution, but it could be a great portfolio hedge for transition risk. You know, energy transition possibly means that some hydrocarbon companies will decrease in value. Therefore, you could buy uh, a carbon asset on the assumption that you think the the cost of carbon is going to go up as we as we transition. It's a great diversification tool because it's pretty much uncorrelated to to any other asset class, and it's also a a, a, a great tool for maybe a, a pre-compliance entities. The best example of this would be the cap and trade program in Europe is going to extend the the numbers of companies and sectors of the economy covered by the cap and trade. So again, if you think that the cost of carbon is going to go up, you could buy this index as a store of carbon value and then utilize that, sell it in the future. And then when, once you do become a compliance entity, you use those euros, dollars, 
to then go buy your compliance units. And it also may be a tool for companies that are thinking about, do I enter the voluntary carbon market? Has that market evolved enough for me to participate? Again, same, same example, you could use the Global Carbon Index. Uh, as, a, as a store of carbon value. And then when you were more comfortable, you could then realize that value to invest in a, a carbon credit. So really what you can do is, is use it as a hedge against change in policy that's hard to predict the pace of. So for example, it seems clear that policymakers and regulators around the world are going to get tougher, are going to require more of a, um, a speedier and more transparent path toward net zero. And so if policies are going to get get stricter, this can help you hedge against that risk. It's very hard to to price up front. Yeah, absolutely can. I think that more and more companies are going to start treating their carbon footprint as a as a liability and they're going to have to compensate for it in the future and they're going to be exposed to potential rises in carbon price if you look at a, a cost abatement curve. The price of carbon needs to be a lot higher than it is today. Even even with the EU a sitting at sort of ninety euros, most analysts and commentators say it needs to be higher than that to to reach net zero. So if you wanted to sort of store the carbon value today to then compensate in the future, that th- this could be a, a a good instrument for you. So whether you're a corporate hedging your own risks or whether you're an investor, you know, hedging the, the value of your portfolio and the securities of the, the companies you hold, but not yet at a, a point where, where retail investors can buy into this. Yeah, not not through, the, you know, the futures contract is, you know, a thousand ton contract. So that's quite a lot of notional uh, for a retail investor. But there are, it's a great point though, because there are lots of ETFs that have arrived over the course of the last 18 months. And I think Crane Shares is probably the most well-known. I think it has $2 billion worth of, of AUM. And I'd imagine some of that is, is, is retail focused. And there's an increasing number of ETFs coming to market. Uh, I'd say the common theme would be, regardless of the index that they use, uh, most of them are effectively um, referring to a, 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 nice, a nice carbon allowance. I can see that I'm going to have to make some adjustments to my 401k, get me some of these ETFs. <laughs> uh, let's come back to this this net zero concept and, and put it in context for, for ICE specifically. I think people are really interested in how leading firms around the world are approaching this question of net zero. What does it mean for them? How are they planning for it? What is their transition pathway? So what does net zero mean for you? We're focused on on setting our reduction targets, and we're definitely looking at frameworks like SBTI in in order to do that. As a fintech company, our our, our own footprint is actually relatively low, and a, a lot of the reductions can be realised through renewable energy. So whether that's through a through a PPA or or, or through a renewable energy certificate, ICE's biggest reductions come through effectively not emitting by buying green electricity. But, uh, you know, the big focus is really in our products and services and our network and really leveraging that valuation engine to help sort of facilitate energy transition and to create an asset class for for natural capital. So, you know, we're effectively trying to be that valuation engine to help allocate capital and, and to, to manage risk, manage energy transition risk. You know, we've talked a lot about the areas that I'm focused in, which is the market side and the environmental market side. I think it's important to note that environmental markets don't work on their own. You need to 
It's about relationships between the energy cost, the hydrocarbon, and the and 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 the 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 negative externality and the clean energy and and the attribute. But we've got a whole host of other services in the data business, whether it's you know green bond indices, ESG reference data, the New York Stock Exchange. We've got an amazing network. Uh, we you know the network is it's a huge network and it's got a huge a broad range of products and services that. Clearly, I'm biased, but I'd say it's unrivaled in the space. Your descriptions have really helped illustrate what a future for carbon markets will look like going forward. But maybe can you just uh, give us a last word on uh, natural capital markets? If you cast your mind ahead, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, what are natural capital markets going to look like? You know, can I just go buy a, a chunk of equity in, in rainforest? And how, how does all this going to work? It would be a great success if we could create a natural asset company that would be transformational i think for for net zero where you or i could invest in in a natural asset company and you're valuing all of these amazing things that nature does uh that we don't value today i think that would be fantastic and i think we'll get allocation of capital to nature through through project-based credits as well i think the combination of utilizing newer technologies and and also you know investing in a ground truthing army to to get more precise around the the sort of the measurement of the the capture and storage of of carbon will be groundbreaking and 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 will really sort of unleash all of these dollars that are waiting to 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 go into these projects i don't think there's any doubt that there's dollars available we just need to incentivize those dollars to go to the to the best projects well and yes and part of that incentivizing process is the building of, of deep and liquid markets where where people can trade these things and you know another benefit of building natural capital markets as well as carbon markets is that you can get flows of climate finance to emerging markets because bearing in mind that a lot of the projects you know that build on natural capital are located in emerging very vulnerable developing economies yeah, I agree 100%. And there are quite often countries that don't have the benefit of URI in terms of unlimited access to energy, right? There's a balance in this energy transition because there's an energy poverty angle. If you can allocate capital to countries that perhaps have uh, energy poverty issues but have, you know, uh, large swathes of natural capital, that sort of helps balance out that energy poverty equation as well. Absolutely. And it's a conversation we'll hear a lot this year in the run up to, to COP27 in Egypt, where climate finance and emerging markets is really going to be very high on the agenda. You can't have a global energy transition without the full support and participation of, of emerging markets to achieve a just transition there. This has been a fantastic conversation, Gordon. I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to be with us today. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you very much for joining and thanks to our audience for listening. To hear this show and for more episodes of All About the Green, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play and Spotify.